Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. All right, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder. Uh, I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit about the market in Latin America. I mean, Latin America has been a market that has been developing quite a bit, you know, over the over the recent years. Uh, but I think that you know, with the founder today, we're really going to get a good understanding of what's happening there. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, David Porritz. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So originally from Massachusetts, a child of New England. How was life growing up there? Excellent. Yeah, no, growing up in, uh, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts, which is the, like a little progressive basket similar to Berkeley, California. So it was a great place to grow up. And uh, yeah, I, I always try to get back there when I can. And obviously there... Um, you know, your, your family, you know, all creatives. So I'm sure that that, that gave you some, some type of creativity too, to, to think about vision and execution. So, so how was that like being surrounded by so many creative people? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, my, I come from a family primarily of artists and creatives. Uh, and yeah, I think one of the, one of the benefits is, you know, I think they, my parents always showed a flexibility and open openness and willingness to kind of let me explore. And I think the way that that manifests itself the most was, you know, through my travels in Latin America. So uh, starting as a, as a 12 year old, I started uh, living and running around the Latin American region and uh, really getting excited by it. So although I grew up in Massachusetts, I feel like most of my uh, middle and high school and even college years were really defined by living in countries like Ecuador and Colombia uh, and most recently, Mexico. So it's been an exciting ride. So uh, very, very far from uh, Mexico and Colombia and Ecuador, as many people probably know, are you know quite pretty exciting places to live on a day-to-day -day basis. So far For from sure. the reality of Massachusetts. <laughs> For sure. And you were mentioning like starting at 12. So I mean, was there was this like exchange programs that you were doing with school or, or how did that happen? Yeah, so as a... Uh, uh, as the, the final sixth grade project in my uh, elementary school was uh, to was to uh, do a basic research uh, analysis and project on a different Latin American country, and I was given at random Ecuador, which is this tiny country in the you know, the north uh, western part of Latin America, 
And it was through that project that I learned about this very famous lawyer who was involved in a number of litigation cases there. Uh, And completely coincidentally, unbeknownst to me, my seventh grade English teacher the following year happened to be the daughter of this very well-known Ecuadorian attorney. So through her, I got connected to him uh, and I began working with him at around 12, 13 years old as like a paralegal. And he began taking with taking me on his adventures down to mostly to Ecuador. So since a very young age, I've uh, had some fun experiences living and working in the Amazon uh, and yeah, exploring the region. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and then you ended up in Brown and you were studying anthropology. So how, how did you, what is anthropology? And, and I mean, why did you ended up studying that? Yeah. So it, it came out of my kind of the early work that I did. So I was you know, b- before getting interested in financial technology and fintech, I was, uh, I, I was, uh, my, my life path was to become a cultural anthropologist. I thought I was going to become like a professor or something. Uh, and yeah, so I, uh, I had lived and worked in Ecuador and Colombia, and I got very interested in, you know, uh, indigenous communities and indigenous peoples based in, uh, you know, based in the Latin American region. Uh, and that's really what I, kind of continued doing until uh, until my time after graduating from Brown. So I went to Brown and then um, after Brown in 2012, I spent uh, two years at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. And I used that opportunity to kind of say, hey, you know, I have two years where basically, you know, no one's judging me, no one's evaluating me, I can kind of just do what I want. And I was really fascinated by financial inclusion and the role that fintech and financial services can play in helping people. So I said, you know what, I'm going to use this two years and, you know, really explore and see what's happening in this space. And obviously this was a life altering and, you know, this kind of like uh, led you eventually to um, what you're doing right now. But I guess before this, you actually started a non-for-profit in the energy sector. So tell us about this. Yeah. So uh, in 2008, uh, I, I'd been at Brown for about a year and a half, and I said, you know, I am passionate about finding ways to improve the oil and gas and energy industry more broadly, Uh, and it built off of a lot of the work that I had been doing with this lawyer that I mentioned. Uh, So I started, I decided to launch uh, an organization called Equitable Origin, which developed the first environmental, social, and safety standards for for the oil and gas and energy industry. So if you think like fair trade certification for oil, gas, and other forms of energy. So we, uh, we launched that and, uh, and we rolled it out primarily in Latin America, but it continues to this day and it's very active in uh, the United States as well as uh, Canada. Uh, so nice. yeah, that's, that's, that was my focus uh, you know, up until about 2000 and end of 2014, early 2015. And this was, uh, you were in New York uh, doing this. Uh, and then, you know, like basically this uh, idea of Credit Justo really like uh, uh, comes and hits you and, and actually hits you so hard that you end up moving to Mexico. So tell us, tell us about, you know, like this entire incubation of the idea, how, you know, you brainstormed and found your co-founder and how you guys brought it to life. Yeah, so one of my closest best friends from from Brown was the other co-founder of Credit Justo, Alan. Uh, and Alan uh, grew up uh, in Mexico City. 
So he grew up, uh, he, he grew up here and he's lived here his whole life. Uh, and after graduation, from, after graduating from Brown in 2012, Alan moved back, ran back to Mexico, started working in private equity while I was studying in the UK. Uh, and look, we stayed in touch and, you know, and, um, this was right around the time, as I'm sure, you know, a lot of people remember when fintech was like totally exploding in a, in a positive sense in the US and Europe. So you had like Lending Club and Prosper and Funding Circle in the UK and Cabbage and On Deck and all these different alternative lending platforms. And Alan and I, you know, uh, we, we saw what was happening. We said, you know, if these platforms are having a, you know, a disruptive effect in the US and Europe, Imagine what these could similar business models could do in the emerging markets or places like Latin America, where you know it's significantly uh, uh, it's, it, there's significantly less um, competition, there's significantly lower credit penetration, and it's harder to get access to credit. So we said all the things that we like about this businesses, if we could take those and like we use the word tropicalize or adapt them to the Latin American region, we thought it would be. Uh, a pretty obvious opportunity. So we started, you know, exploring and, you know, we, we said, okay, we know we want to do this in Latin America, but we don't yet know what country. <laughs> so we, we spent about six months studying every country from Argentina and Brazil and, and, the, and what they call the Southern Cone, all the way up through Colombia and Peru uh, and eventually to Mexico. And out of that assessment, we said, you know what, Mexico is really the low hanging fruit in the region given the size of the market, uh, the fact that it's so difficult to get access to credit here, and that there was very, very limited activity in the kind of startup ecosystem. Got it. So for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model? So first, we did our Latin America analysis. And once we kind of honed in on Mexico, we then spent another, I don't know, three to six months studying Every kind of financial product that you can imagine, we looked at, you know, payday lending, we looked at credit cards, we looked at auto lending, we looked at leasing and factoring, uh, secured and unsecured. And out of that, we decided that really the market most needed uh, a multi-product small business platform that we said, you know, the Mexican market needs a real comprehensive solution to offer credit to small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, and that was really the genesis of Credit Justo. We said, we're going to build uh, a full-service, multi-product lending platform focused exclusively and built exclusively for the small business sector. And this was back in 2015 where like startups were like unheard of in, in Mexico. I mean, this is obviously Spain is, is to a certain degree a little bit similar, uh, but I think that probably Mexico is a little bit behind uh, now, I mean, technology and startups, you know, like have skyrocketed for quite a while in Spain. I think that Mexico and Latin America, you know, now has been picking up. But in 2015, I mean, it was like the what it used to be in Spain, too. It was like you finish school and you go into becoming a lawyer or becoming a banker or a consultant. Uh, but here you guys are, you know, starting a startup uh, in a place that, they, you know, they're not as used to to, to startups itself. So I, I'm sure that it, this was quite a battle for you guys. Yeah, it was like literally a desert is the word I would use. It was, it felt, you know, Mexico is a very robust, you know, fairly well diversified economy, but the, like the culture of, you know, uh, of launching a business and getting, you know, early stage seed capital, it just wasn't, it, it just, 
it, it really wasn't something that was part of kind of like the national identity. Uh, and I think, you know, Alan and I got involved early where it was still, you know, very, very, very hard. So, you know, we would, you know, we, you know, we, early on, we would, in 2015, we started raising our first kind of outside capital. We did a fundraise in the summer of 2015. And I remember we decided to focus, you know, almost exclusively in the U.S. and primarily in New York. And, you know, everyone just like Mexico, me no, 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 no. And then finally, we, we found some folks who the story resonated with. And I think, you know, the most notable of those people was John Mack, who is the former uh, CEO of Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse. And he understood the opportunity set in Mexico. He was on the board previously of Lending Club. And I think he saw the potential for a technology-enabled lending platform and what it could do uh, for the Mexican market. Uh, but before that, I can tell you it was a very, very, very long road uh, where we got uh, rejected, as most entrepreneurs do, many times. Uh, but it was just that much harder because people were not familiar with Mexico. Got it. And obviously, I mean, this this happens all the time where you it really takes a lot. Finally, there's like a big name, you know, that is like the tipping point, And then everyone wants to be part of it. It's yeah, I think that's, you know... Uh, we feel fortunate, but that's, you know, kind of what happened in our case. I remember vividly, you know, uh, you know, John Max and yeah, yeah, okay, I, I understand it. Let's do it. And then behind him, we got a group called Victory Park Capital, which was a very well-known cr uh, credit fund in the U.S. that was doing some equity investments. They came behind him uh, and then groups like Broadhaven Capital Partners and Elevar Equity. Anyway, it was, yeah, it was a classic domino effect, but it's like, like literally just people had no interest in the Mexican market. And early on there, there were like no success stories to point to the analogies that we were using when speaking about our business were all outside of Mexico. So I think that that made it particularly hard because usually from, or at least from my experience and, and, you know, and getting an investor and convincing an investor is really largely about getting them comfortable and giving them examples of where and why we think we can be successful. And the problem with Latin America was, you know, there basically weren't examples of IPOs. Uh, the Brazilian market is much, much more developed uh, than Mexico. Uh, so it made it that much harder. Got it. And, and how, I mean, here we're talking about John Mack. I mean, we're talking here about the former CEO of Morgan Stanley. So arguably one of the most uh, influential, you know, uh, folks in the in the financial service space so how how did you get you know in front of john mack i mean what did you guys do in order to get in front of him yeah it was it was an adventure you know so it was uh i i had a friend from brown who originally was from ecuador so we shared uh a lot of interests in terms of the latin american region he had started or so he, he with one of his other friends had started a company in new york in the financial services space, and they had they had been able to get to John, uh, and then through him, he said, "You know what? I think John would like this business." So you know, and then he uh, he eventually made the introduction, uh, and it was you know, look, it's a surreal experience, you know, <laughs> you know like, it was uh, it was definitely one of the more nerve wracking early experiences. <laughs> so I, I studied anthropology. The joke is like. The joke inside of Credit Huso is like, I can't even count, you know? So it's like, I, you know, my whole background was in social sciences and 
I, I knew nothing about finance. The last math class I took was geometry in high school. Uh, <laughs> and I, I had to learn, you know, about, you know, financial services and capital markets and, you know, uh, in debt financing and all these things. So it was the first year or two were, uh, you know, definitely, uh, I, I had to learn pretty quickly. So. Got it. No, I can imagine. And and how much going back to fundraising? How much capital have you guys raised today? We've raised sixty million in equity uh, across our seed and Series A and B. So we've done three rounds of equity financing, early seed, and then we did our Series A, which was led by QED, uh, which is a uh, the former Capital One Bank folks, and Kazakh Ventures, which is the Mercado Libre founders. Uh, and then our Series B was our most recent round this past August was our Series B, which was a $42 million raise, uh, which was led by Goldman Sachs and by Point72, which is the hedge fund in New York. Uh, so that's on the, uh, on the equity side. And then on the debt side, we've raised uh, uh, just about $250 million. Uh, we just closed about three weeks ago a $100 million line with Credit Suisse with their New York securitization group. Uh, and then last March, we closed the hundred million with Goldman Sachs with their special situations group out of New York. Uh, and then we work with a few other groups like OPIC, which is you know part of the U.S. It's uh, the U.S. development U.S. development funding, a partners group, and a few others. So yeah, so it's been a uh, it's been an interesting journey, and yeah, we feel really lucky because we're we're one of the we're one of the more institutionally backed uh, startups today in Mexico. Got it. And even with that, you know, it's a quite a challenge to recruit people. You know, I I've heard that uh, you're the kind of individuals that takes the entire family of whoever you're looking to recruit to an amusement park. So so tell us about this. Yeah, look, it's every doing. So if if you can, the way I would describe Mexico is the process of starting anything here is just like I don't know, five to ten x more difficult. So convincing talent to move from the United States, to move from San Francisco or to, re or to relocate from New York is extremely hard. So, you know, I, you know, I still spend today 50 to 60% of my time on recruitment of high impact people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty, yeah, it's a, you know, you got to be extremely patient, you know, and, and what I've learned is it's not just about, convincing the individual it's about convincing their whole families i've had multiple people who have signed offer letters who have said well, i'm ready to go you know guns blazing uh and then their wife decides you know or their family decides that you know it's just they, they're not able to pull the trigger and move down here so you know most recently i remember two three months ago i had a uh i had an individual uh sign an offer letter uh i had spent i don't know two three days with him and his family, taking them to restaurants, taking the kids to jungle gyms, visiting schools, looking at apartments, you know, taking strolls down the nice areas of the city, like, you know, you name it, we did it. Uh, and, you know, uh, but lo and behold, you know, thought it was a done deal. And sure enough, you know, uh, wasn't able to get it, wasn't able to push it through. So I think you have to be incredibly uh, persistent and you have to be you know, incredibly uh, accommodating and really flexible in order to get people to come down. I think once they move, they can they experience what life is like down here and then they end up really loving it. But it is a hard process. So in that process, I mean, you were mentioning San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco is the 
land of opportunity. I mean, you have all the capital, you have all the talent. I mean, you have everything in the world. Like, what do you think pushes someone over the edge to to make such an aggressive move and, and go to Mexico from there? It's about convincing them on the opportunity. And it's about, you know, explaining to them, you know, how, you know, you know, credit penetration, meaning the availability of credit in Mexico is half what it is in Brazil. Yet Mexico is about a third of the size of the United States. And it's really about getting them comfortable on the amazing opportunity that Credit Justo has and the role that technology and smart capital markets can play in really building a business. So I think it's, it's, it's really about getting, you need to pitch both employees and investors on the market and the opportunity that, they, that we see and hopefully that they see in, the, in, in Mexico and in the region and on our strategy. Uh, and I think that, you know, as the U.S. gets more and more competitive, you know, there's like a small business lender on every corner in the United States. There's like a few of them down here in Mexico. I think that people start to see, wow, the opportunity to build uh, a market leader in Mexico is in many ways so much easier than it is in the United States. And I think that really gets people energized. Got it. So how many people do you guys have now in, in the business? How many employees? We have around 300 today. So we're about, uh, yeah, we're, we're, uh, we have 300 today. Uh, and yeah, we've, you know, we went a year ago, we were about 100. So yeah, we're definitely in a, in a high growth, you know, moment. And yeah, it's an, you know, it's a complex but exciting time to be in our business. Uh, I mean, exciting, exciting for sure. And obviously you guys must be super busy given what's happening in, you know, in the world now with COVID-19. So, so what's happening now, for example, with, with you guys, you, you're obviously deeply connected to small businesses and, and, and lending to them. So you guys must be very busy. Yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a fascinating moment and definitely the most complex moment for our business. Because on the one hand, you can imagine we are a lifeblood for many small businesses because we're one of the only groups that extends credit to them. So that's like on, on, on the one end of the spectrum, you know, we have a responsibility and we have deep exposure to the small business space and you need to work with those clients and you need to be flexible with them and you need to, you know, really uh, get them through this moment, which I think we're very well positioned to do. But with that comes challenges. You know, it's, it's harder for small businesses to service their debt. It's given that, you know, uh, their revenues have dramatically decreased. So everything that you could imagine, you know, uh, harming a small business, uh, we feel that. But on the other hand, we've never seen so much credit demand from remarkably strong companies. So we're seeing larger companies that are looking for, uh, you know, uh, scale, uh, growth capital. Uh, to be able to improve their liquidity and really take advantage of these of this opportunity, so it's this really fascinating moment where, in certain ways, it's incredibly scary, given the challenges that our businesses are going through. But on the other end, it's like, oh my God, there's the biggest opportunity that we've ever seen, which is to capitalize and take advantage of, um, you know, all the credit that is needed from high quality borrowers in the market. So it's these, it's like this juxtaposition between these two extremes. Got it. So, David, so imagine you go to sleep tonight and uh, you you literally wake up, you know, in five years. I mean, it's a, an incredible snooze. Maybe you, you slept more than, than any, any, any time before. No? And you wake up and you wake up in a world where the vision of Credit Justo is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
Yeah, so I think it looks like uh, you know us becoming the SME bank for Mexico and potentially in the region. So I think you know what we're realizing is lending is 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 important, but over time we want to be able to take savings and we really want to be able to own our. We want to be able to offer and serve our clients in a comprehensive way. Uh, so I think you know if I say where where are we in five years? Where we are the go to brand and the go to SME purpose built institution, SME bank and SME built institution for our market. Uh, and I think, you know, that means clients are no longer bothering going to, you know, traditional incumbent banks and they're, you know, they're, they're going to Credit Husa because we're the solution. And I also think potentially it means we have presence in other countries outside of Mexico uh, and really have a regional, you know, basically, you know, regional activity. But in the least, I think being the dominant go-to household name for SME finance in Mexico. Got it. And I guess, hey, obviously, in the space that you guys are operating in, is is heavily regulated. I mean, those companies in the U.S., I mean, it's it's big time, you know, the obstacles that, that you encounter on the execution. How is it like there in, in, in a place like Mexico? It's like the Wild West. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I think, so I'll give you some examples. So, you know, in the U.S., as you just, as you appropriately just said, you know, a f- finance and lending is regulated on a state-by-state state basis. So if you're a specialty finance or a fintech lender, you have to navigate, in theory, 40 or 50 geographies or jurisdictions. In Mexico, you have one regulator. So if you figure out how to do it on a, on a national basis, you're covered across the entire country. Um, and also the, the lending space is, uh, it, it's, uh, the regulatory regime is very light in a positive way because the government really wants to support uh, better access to finance and more financial inclusion. So that's it, it's 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 very unregulated. It's very very open, and you know it feels like what banking was like maybe in the 1980s in the United States. That's what it feels like in terms of the sophistication of of you know just the general you know generally what's happening. So it's incredibly exciting. You know it's a, it's an opportunity where I feel like it really feels like I get up every morning and. You know, I have hundreds of obstacles in front of us, but it feels like we're trailblazers. And it feels like we're doing stuff that's going to, you know, have an impact and really be a lasting business over the, you know, over the medium and long term. And talking about experience, I mean, it's been five years with the business of crazy hyper growth uh, of uh, tons of ups and downs, which is, you know, what entrepreneurship is all about and tons of uh, learnings and, and experiences, no? So I guess if you had the opportunity to go back in time, let's say back to 2015, where you and Alan were thinking about like what kind of future you wanted to build and what kind of company. If you had the opportunity to go back and speak to, to your younger self, knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? So both Alan and I are what we would categorize as like non-technical founders. So neither of us are engineers. Uh, you know, neither of us have deep experience in sales and growth. So we're, we're, we're truly like generalists. Like, you know, I don't know, you, you, people go to Brown and, you know, you, it's like you get a classic liberal arts degree, right? So you leave, you know, uh, as totally a generalist. And I think the tactical error that Alan and I made is we did not bring on early the right partners to supplement our skill set. So specifically, we should have brought on 
a technical co-founder, someone who had been a CTO before, someone who had really built a technology company. And we really should have brought someone on who had deep experience in sales and growth. So I think had we done that back in 2015 or early 2016, I think we would have been a year and a half, two years ahead of where we are today. So that's the, my, the very tangible thing that I would have different is that we, we needed to have supplemented what we were not good at very, very early on with other people. Uh, and concretely, it's on the technology side and I think on the commercial sales side. And that's because you guys had to had a big, steep learning curve that you needed to learn for yourselves rather than... Oh my God, we wasted millions of dollars on stupid technology decisions, poor growth strategies. Yeah, it's just we did not have the experience. We were first-time first time founders who had, not done, who had not done this before. We were operating in a market where it made everything more difficult. So we needed to have had uh, experience in those two areas. And I think if we did, we would have been, look, we're super excited where we are, but I think we would have been a year or two ahead uh, in terms of our maturity and development. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Very cool. So David, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Send me an email. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, uh, um, d at credihusto.com. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from people. Uh, you know, about their, you know, uh, about what they're up to or, you know, we're in an exciting period. And I think we're always looking for partners, whether that's you know, new team members or investors. So, yeah, that's uh, I love to get emails and uh, yeah, love to love to speak and learn to folk, speak and learn from folks. Amazing, David. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. It was uh, great to chat. And uh, yeah, hope, uh, ho hope we get to meet in person soon. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.